All right. We're going to start in God's Word today, guys. So grab a Bible. Go to Matthew chapter 5. Told you I was going to say that every single week from till the cows come home. So grab a Bible, go to Matthew chapter five. Uh, We've been at MCC, we've been in a series called New Normal. And what we're talking about in this series is how we in this kind of post-COVID, kind of middle of COVID, we don't really know what's going on with COVID kind of season, that it's easy to think that, man, this is the biggest shift ever that's happened. This is the biggest change. There's so much changing so fast. But the reality is COVID has nothing on Christ's Sermon on the Mount. When he began to preach this sermon, He essentially flipped the whole table over and said, what you thought was normal is normal no more. I am coming on the scene and I am changing everything. The way you thought about everything you thought about needs to shift and needs to change. So we've been diving into the series and we've been unpacking what does it look like to enter into this life that Jesus called us to. We all want some kind of life. Most of us, I think, would be willing to admit we want a good life. We don't know what that means. We don't even know what that looks like. But Jesus shows up and he says, hey, I got an idea. Here's what it's going to be like. Here's going to be the good life. And he lays out this blessed, this happy, good life for us. And we're going to read that. And then we're going to go to uh, Matthew 5, 5, which is a particular beatitude we're going to be talking about today. So let's read this. It's going to be up on the screen. Read it along. Let's sink into your heart. Matthew 5, chapter 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So that's our passage. This is Jesus laying out what this new blessed life looks like. And again, we've been unpacking this and talking through this, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time, again, setting the scene, setting the context. Remember, Jesus is starting this sermon with a group of people on kind of a remote hillside in Galilee who are the people you would least expect. I think sometimes, again, we can get this mental image that as Jesus is showing up, preaching the sermon, he's preaching it to a room full of people like what we've experienced at church when a sermon is preached. People who kind of have their stuff together, people who are kind of buttoned up, people who, you know, or maybe some of the religious people, but the people who are on this hillside today are anything but those people. Week one, we laid out that there are essentially two groups of people, and we kind of still put society into these two groups of the haves and the have-nots. And the people who are in this crowd were primarily have-nots. This is a group of people called the Anawim. They were kind of defined as this throwaway people. They're the people, if you go uh, backwards a chapter to chapter four, you see when Jesus gathers all them together. In chapter four, we see Jesus healing people, casting out demons, waking people up, helping them be able to have new ears to hear and eyes to see. And then from all of this giant region, the, the swell happens when these people begin to follow Jesus and they follow him all the way to this place. And he's like, he kind of looks around and goes, all right, well, we're all here now. Let me, let me tell you what this whole following me thing is about. And he launches into this. And right off the bat, he goes into his first beatitude. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And right there off the bat, he says that the only way in to this 
is bankruptcy. You can't buy your way into this. You only come into this kingdom through realizing you are bankrupt. You have no righteousness of your own. And you have to come to me and realize that poverty. Then you come in. And as we talked about these Beatitudes, one of the things we've made out and kind of laid out very clearly is that they're not like the Proverbs. Or Proverbs, you can go through and just pick out a couple of wisdom sayings and say, I want to go take that one and put that in my pocket and I'll use that a little bit later on. They're just kind of all out there randomly. But these Beatitudes, they flow in order. And so if you don't get that number one, that's why I continue to go back to this. And, and, and um, intros of these messages hopefully we're, you know, will maybe get shorter. But I got to keep us on this path because they do flow in ascending order. If you don't get step one of be poor in spirit, realize your spiritual bankruptcy and that you cannot save yourself. If you don't get there, you'll never get to two, which is mourning over your sin. That's realizing how bankrupt you were and how, who, what, who you've sinned against and realizing that because of that sin, you lost a thing that was actually the most important thing you ever could have had, a birthright into the family of God. That sin separates us from our connectivity to God and it goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Garden of Eden. God created Adam and Eve as his first children and sin, what did it do? It separated that so that connection between father and son and daughter is different. We talked about how when we mourn of our sin, we come and we realize, my sin separated me so much from you, Father God, that I'm not even worthy to call you Father God. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And then the Father goes, you're right, but that's not going to stop me. You're right. But I'm still parakaleo. I am still coming after you to comfort you. I am still going to plead and beg with you to not let your sin, not let your folly, not let your mistakes keep you from coming into my loving, welcoming arm. That's why he said, blessed are those who mourn, because they will be comforted. Okay? So, so track with us in all of this. Poverty of spirit. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. They, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay? The words are a little bit different. So he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is something that you got and it doesn't go away. It's just an always kind of operating thing. Now he says, blessed are the people who mourn, for they will be comforted. So anytime the mourning happens, the comforting happens. It's not necessarily like the kingdom of heaven thing where like, you just poor in spirit, that kingdom of heaven thing is always yours, it's always on tap. The king of heaven is giving you the kingdom of heaven. It's all available, it's all on tap for you. All the resources of God's kingdom is available and then he gets to this, last, this third one, and he says, blessed are those who are meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, when we hear meek, like, let's be honest, nobody's like putting that at the top of, you know, as people have started been doing this, so I'm kind of looking for some, uh, re- a lot of resumes kind of right now. Um, and none of them, everybody kind of does, some people do this thing where they like well, list out some like qualities like strategic thinker, self-starter, you know, go-getter, organized, administrative. None of them, none of them say meek. Nobody's after that. But when Jesus was putting kind of his list together, like it's number three, he says, blessed are the meek. And when we think about meek, what do we think about? Weak. We think about this limp-wristed, and especially for us as guys, like none of us are like, man, I just want my daughter to marry this meek guy. (laughs) None of us are are like, man, like when I'm like writing out qualities of who I want to become, none of us are going meek. Like we, we we don't just naturally go to meek because when we think meek, we think weak. We think pushover. We think... Somebody that's going to, you know, have footprints on their back, that's not going to get the promotion, that's going to be mousy and passive and just kind of let things, let life happen to them. And that's not 
the American gospel that we're preached to as, as men. And as women, it's the same, a lot of the similarities because you have to overcorrect where maybe the, the normal type of woman was, was meek. And so you go, well, I'm not that. I don't want to prove to the world that I'm not that. And so we uh, maybe overcorrect to go and, no, I'm going to be strong. I'm going to be the strong mom. I'm going to be the tiger mom or whatever those things are that are out there. And so we find ourselves not knowing what does biblical meekness actually look like. I think to understand, I want to take you back to the, the original kind of way the word was formed. In the Latin, it actually connotates getting used to the hand. And it's an agricultural term. It talks about animals. So over and over again in the Bible, you, you've seen this happen. God will refer to us as, as his people and as human beings, sometimes as animals. Sheep, oftentimes. Also, in, in the Old Testament, he'll talk to us as, as, and these aren't fun animals either, the ones you wouldn't pick at the zoo to go, which animal, when you talk to your kid, if you could be an animal, which one you want to be? None of them are picking the things that God picked for us. Sheep, donkeys, and camels. When he described his people, he was like, they're like a wild donkey that, that kicks, they're like a camel that goes out and has done dumb stuff. That's how he talked about us but when he talks about this word meek he's describing an animal who has gotten used to the hand and this is an animal that's now become manageable that his strength hasn't gone away necessarily but his strength has gotten dialed in and processed in the direction that he wants it to go a great example of this i would show you um, is is these horses so if you've ever been to uh, St. Simon's Island, you know there's this island outside of St. Simon's called the Cumberland Islands. And there on the Cumberland Islands, you have wild horses. It's one of the only places in America, uh, one of the few on the East Coast that you can go and just see wild horses. You know, they're kind of rare to spot, but you can just see them out there. And they're wild. They do what they want. They're scared of humans. They don't, you know, you can't just like go up to them on the Cumberland Island and be like, man, I just want to get my Fabio on the beach vibe and just hop on one of those bad boys and take off. Like that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Okay, so those, these are wild horses. Now, I want to show you another horse. This is a Belgian workhorse. This, you know, when I, I Googled this week, you know, what's the strongest workhorse? Like, this is the one that came up. Apparently, it's got a nice stocky frame. It's got, its legs are a little bit thicker. It's got a wider back. This is when you talk about, I want to work. I want to pull something. I want to get the job done. This is the horse you go after. Now, as you look at these two different horses, you follow, follow the first two, these wild stallions, Mustangs kind of out on the beach, raising up, fighting each other and everything else. Now see these two. What's the primary difference? The other two were naked. Okay? They were doing what they want. They weren't strapped to nothing. These have blinders. These have all these fancy harnesses. And they're restrained and connected to each other. Now, both of these horses, whether it's the Cumberland Island horses or these Dutch horses, Workhorses are incredibly strong. The difference is the strength has now become manageable. And see, when we think about meekness, we think about weakness. We don't think that's something that is strong. The reality is those two horses are still incredibly strong. The strength has now just become manageable by the master. So another image. I saw this little girl this morning that walked in, and she looked like the character Boo from uh, Monsters, Inc. It's just incredibly cute. And it made me kind of think about, like, cartoons and stuff. And, and here's another image. So take, anybody ever seen, anybody know what I'm talking about with that little girl from that movie? Just a cute little cartoon girl. Okay, okay. So imagine um, that little girl at a tea, and just I'm going to give you two images. You tell me which one is more meek, okay? Um, sorry, I'm going to, like, jump from cartoons to comic books here. Um, say you have that little girl. And then you have Bruce Banner, 
Now, for those of you who don't know who Bruce Banner is, Bruce Banner is the guy before he turns into Hulk, okay? So you have that little girl and you have Bruce Banner. Now, Bruce Banner is in maybe his doctor robe, whatever, and he's sitting down with that little girl having a tea party, okay? You have that image, okay? Got that one in your mind? Cool. Next image is that same little girl, okay? Sitting at a tea party, but instead of Bruce Banner, you have Incredible Hulk. Just purple, purple shorts, no shirt, Incredible Hulk, <laughs> sitting there having a tea party. Now, my question is, which one of those is a better display of meekness? Bruce Banner or Hulk? Hulk, yeah, okay. So it's actually the stronger representative. Meekness goes up the more strength is dialed in. And that's where I think we're getting a little bit closer to a biblical definition of meekness. But even there, I think we're still off from the context of who Jesus was actually talking to. Because Jesus wasn't talking to, there on the hillside in Galilee, to, the pre, to that, that history day, their equivalent of the incredible hulks. He wasn't talking to the wealthy. He wasn't talking to the people who had all the clout in the world. He wasn't talking to the people. It wasn't a group of soldiers there on the hill today who had, you know, ripped biceps and hadn't had carbs in a while and had shiny sheets and all these things. Like, that's not the crowd. Remember the crowd. Because if we want to define meekness as just strength under control, like your strength under control, well, that's not Jesus' crowd. Because there are people in the crowd who didn't have strength to walk a few days before, got healed by Jesus, and now can walk, followed him here to the, the hillside, and now they're sitting down. So when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, the context is not, blessed are you who are wealthy, who know how to be self-controlled in your wealth to be able to help other people and you're meek in your wealth. And blessed are those who are strong because you don't hulk out on your neighbors when they steal your you know, rake and don't give it back for a few weeks. That's not what he's talking about. I would give, a, I think, the, the, a little bit closer to the more biblical definition of what he's after here. Uh, the Greek word there for meek is this word praus, P-R-A-U-S. Now, Here's how I would define it. Most theologians would define meekness and even the biblical side of meekness as um, that strength under control. I think in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, though, it's not just strength under control because the people he's talking to don't have strength. So I would say meek is God's strength under his control. And again, that's been this whole thing in the Sermon on the Mount. It's starting at the spiritual place of origin that's not about your emotions. That's not about your physical life. That is everything flowing from who you are on the inside spiritually. This eternal part of who you are in your soul. So he says, meek. Meek is God's power at work in his way through me as a vessel. All right. Now, we hear that and go, well, how in the world does God's power get in me? How do I have, okay, like if the image of true meekness is the incredible Hulk type of thing, having a tea party with somebody, how on the spirit, how do I have a spiritual version of that? You can only have the spiritual version of that if you've walked through this point to the Beatitudes. See, you can get to the place where you have God's strength under God's control when you go Beatitude one and realize that now the entire kingdom of heaven is mine. All of it. God, because of my poverty in spirit, God has now made me rich. And that every blessing, every resource that he has ever made available because of who he is, is now on tap for me. If I allow his will to be done in my life, if my life is a place where kingdom of heaven things happen, again, we define kingdom of heaven 
as any place where what God wants done is actually done. So you get there. You have that place. You come to the place where you are at, at this reality where you're going, I'm, I'm, I'm just mourning over my sin. Beatitude two. Again, all these things work and flow together. And at that poverty and at that mourning of your sin, God says, the kingdom of heaven is all of yours and I'm going to comfort you. Now, uh, if you look at the prodigal son story, if you look at even how you comfort somebody else, like you can comfort somebody with a hug, but when people are really hurting, what do you do? You give them something. You give them resources. You comfort them by going and getting them some chicken noodle soup. Are you comforting them by getting them some flowers or chocolate or take a babysitting their kid? Like you comfort people by using your resources, not just your presence, but even your resource to show them that you love them and they're welcome back in. That's why in the prodigal son story, the father comforts him in and then what does he do? He gives him resources. He kills a fattened calf. He gives him, a ja- he gives him I don't know, a, whatever the equivalent of to a really nice jacket, cloak. He gives him a ring. And the ring, here's what you don't know. You, he didn't just give him a ring to say like, oh, here's a cool ring so you can like look cool today. He, the ring was how they, the ring was essentially the family credit card. Because with the ring, it's called a sign it ring or a sign it ring. And what they would do is it was the family seal implanted on the ring so that he, whenever he wanted to sign off or give his approval for something, they would take a little piece of wax. And so if this was the order that came in, he would take that wax and that ring actually acted as a stamp. So him getting the ring is like him getting the credit card. It's him getting the ticket into all the father's resources, which is wild. And we'll get into this a little bit more. If you track the progress through these beatitudes, what you see happening here is I am poor. And again, you can even see it in the story of the prodigal son. I am poor and broken in spirit. I have nothing. It's the prodigal son, elbows deep in the pig pods going, I just want to eat this. I've wasted my life. Even my father's servants have more than I have. I am bankrupt. And then he goes, I have wasted it all. And I'm no longer worthy to be called a son. My, my dad should not even look at me like I'm a son anymore. And so what he feels, again, mourning involves losing. What I have lost is the most important, again, the most important thing in their culture, and I would say maybe even in ours, that you were at risk of losing was your birthright, who, who you were. And so he says, I'm not worthy. The one most important thing that I had, my birthright, my relationship to this family is now gone because of my sin, my failing, and my mistake. And he comes to the father the father gives him the comfort. And you remember what he thought he had lost. That he had thought he had lost his birthright. He had thought he had lost a place in the family. And what does the father do? He comes in, comforts him, and says, this son, not this jerk, this son who was lost is now found. He does all the things that you would give to a son. And what does he promise to also give him? The thing that he thought he had lost. He thought he lost an inheritance. He shows back up and the father says, I'm gonna comfort you. I'm gonna love you. And says, I'm gonna prove that that thing that you thought you lost, which is a relationship with me, it's back. And I'm gonna prove it with a down payment of this inheritance. So you don't get in, and that's what's so beautiful about this, this, this beatitude. It said, blessed are the meek, not because they will overtake the earth, not because they will win the earth, because they will inherit. How do you inherit something? You only inherit something by a relationship. You only inherit, you're like you don't do anything to inherit. You're just a part of something. That's how you inherit something. 
You're a son or a daughter of whatever the, 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 the rich person is, the person with the resources. And this relationship, it's not like a relationship with a cute guy or a cute girl or a relationship with a, a business partner or anything like that. You didn't do anything to earn this relationship. You surrendered out of the poverty of your spirit, out of the mourning of your sin, and into the meekness of realizing that you had already wasted all of the inheritance. And now the father comes in and says, because you have continued to take this humble, lowly, submissive place, all of the inheritance is back for you. Again, this is Jesus flipping everything on his head. And when he's doing this, what he's doing is he's showing us his heart. This is his heart. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. I love this passage. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Jesus talking. This is what he says. Side note, if you're tired right now, anybody else tired? Like, just let's just be honest. Church is church. You got to be honest. Raise your hand if you're tired. I mean, maybe if you're too tired to raise your hand, just leave it down. <laughs> Let me just say, like, if you're tired, seriously, I, just go read Matthew 11. See Jesus' heart for the tired. Some of you mamas watching online or in the room, um, and I got some people in our community group. I got some people that I know from our church. I, I just, we've had a lot of prayer requests kind of come in. I don't know if this is a season. I don't know what's going on, if it's like shifting seasons, whatever. Um, I know some people who are tired. And um, let Matthew 11 speak to your heart this week. Um, side, side note there. Um, this is a glimpse of it. And there's, I'm going to pull out one verse out of Matthew 11. The whole thing is sweeter and sweeter and sweeter once you put it all together. So Matthew 11:29, 29, Jesus says this, take my yoke, that's again, kind of referring to the thing that we saw on those two horses, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Now, we like to think about who Jesus is. And we hear books and we read stories and we hear sermons about who Jesus is. This passage right here is one of the very few passages we have in all of scripture where Jesus says, do you want to know what my heart is like? Do you want to know who I am? Where he actually stops talking about how you should live when he stops talking about what the kingdom of God likes. And he says, this is who I am. In the very succinct two or three verses that we have where he describes his heart, his like. And when we say heart, that's talking about like his deepest internal mechanism that makes him tick. He says, my heart, who I really am, is gentle and lowly in heart. And that word gentle there is that same word prouse that in Matthew 5, 5 is translated as meek. So you could take the same very passage right here, Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, and essentially read it as, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So this is Jesus' way of saying, you can be meek, and the only way you will be is if you take your old heart of stone out, the old heart that you realized was broken and impoverished, and you allow me to replace it with my heart. And that's the only way that you'll be able to operate in this state of meekness. There's a book that I've been reading that's been good for my soul and I know would be good for yours as well. Uh, it's by a guy named Dan Ortland. It's actually all about this one passage right here of Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 and the heart of Jesus and who he really is. The book's called uh, Gentle and Lowly and this is a quote that I took out of there. It says, Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh or reactionary or easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. And I hope that just 
flies right in the face of who you thought he was. The most understanding person in the universe. I'm like, why would you, why are you staying distant and hiding from the most welcoming in, understanding person in the universe? Like he, he understands you. Like he knows exactly what's going on. He's the most understanding person in the universe. He knows what it's like to be exactly who you are, where you are, and feeling what you felt. He felt all of it. And he's not standing back with a pointed finger going, get your crud together. He's staying there like the prodigal father with arms open saying, come on. I, come on. We're good. We can make us out of this. We see this kind of ex- explained even a little bit more in Hebrews 5.2. Another passage that <laughs> is not as nice, but still good. Uh, Hebrews 5.2, if you got a Bible, you can turn over there. I'm going to show you guys this passage. I think it deals with the heart of, heart of Christ and this idea of what in the world is meekness. Hebrews 5.2 says this. It says, he's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and who are going astray. Again, like the donkey or the camel or the dumb sheep. Since he himself was subject to meekness. Again, like, I love the Bible. Like, you can't make this stuff up. And it's so honest and so true. I don't know why people don't read this more. He says, he is able to deal gently with the ignorant. It's like, you're an idiot. I'm still gonna deal gently with you. Like, and like, we've had those moments. Like, again, let's be honest. Like, we've had those moments where we sat in the car after the mistake that we made and just gone, I'm an idiot. Why do I keep doing this? Where we felt like that. We've, we've all been there where we've, I've just, I'm an idiot. How did I believe them again? Why did I let them into my heart? Why did, I, why did I let them lead me on? Why did I lead myself on? Why did I talk myself into making that suit? We've all had those moments. And here's what I want you to know. You deal harder with yourself than Jesus is dealing with you. He says, look, I, I deal gently with those who are idiots. <laughs> Stop dealing harder than I deal with you. Now, now here's why he can. He says, I'm able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since... He himself was subject to weakness. Since he himself was willing to humble himself, he knows what it's like to be us. Again, what does it mean? He subjected himself to weakness. It means he put flesh and blood on. It means he came down here. It means he was a newborn. You don't get any weaker than that. He's subject to all of it. Like he knows what it's like to put flesh and bone on and walk in your life. That's what he did. So he says, I can deal gently with you because I've been with you. I've walked those paths. I've done those things. And this is where we learn what submission looks like. Because you can't have meekness without first having submission. That's where the, the humility of saying, I'm poor in spirit. That's the humility of mourning. And that's, again, all three of these first Beatitudes, like it's all just this new version, like or a different uh, a dial of humility. So he says, there's got to be submission here. And we see submission on full display in his life as he submits to this craziness that happened to him. We see this on full display as we, we walk in and we see Jesus first and foremost submitting to the will of the Father. The picture we get is Jesus showing up on a hillside. This time it's not the hillside in Galilee where it's daylight. This time it's midnight, it's pitch black. Jesus just got through breaking bread, washing the feet. He watched one of the guys who he thought was his friend leave out of the room and nobody else really knows what he's going to do, but he knows what he's going to do. And he goes out to the garden in the meantime between what he's going to do. 
And there he is in the garden with all of his friends who he told to stay up and watch and pray. Now all kind of turn their back on him, betraying him a little bit, falling asleep, snoozing, had too much of the Passover feast. They're out cold. He's praying his life out. Literally, sweat is dripping off of him like drops of blood as he is there in the garden, on his hands, on his knees, praying for people like me, praying for people like you, but most importantly, praying to his father and going, Father, if there is absolutely any way that this cup, and again, when he's talking about the cup, he's not just talking about going to the cross. The cross wasn't just a physical thing. The cross was a physical, mental, spiritual, emotional thing where all the sin of all mankind is poured out on him. And for the first time ever, he feels a separation between him and the father. He says, if that cup can pass, if there's any way that can happen, let that be. But Father, not my will be done, but your will be done. And see, a lot of times when we think about the gospel, when we think about Jesus and why in the world did Jesus go to the cross, like too many of us have got these like feel good church messages where we think, and again, this is part of it, so don't, don't feel me bashing that wholeheartedly, but we've got a lot of these feel good church messages where we think Jesus has just gone to the cross because he loved us so much. And friends, yes, he did. But I want you to understand something that so ties back into meekness wholeheartedly. The reason that he was able to go through that and the reason his love is on full display is primarily because, not because he loved you so much, is because he got in the garden. He said, Father, more than even I love them, I love you, and I want to do your will. See, it's heresy for us to think that, that in the order of who Jesus loved that motivated him to do what he did, that we came before him loving the Father. No, he loved the Father so much that he was willing to put his love for the Father on display by being brutally mutilated and put on a cross. And so he says, Father... And I believe this is, where, this is where the explosion of meekness in Jesus' persona happens. And it's not first and foremost submitting to the will of other people. It's submitting to the will of the Father. And when we see Jesus submit to the will of the Father, then this chain of meekness is set into motion. And you watch this happen in the scriptures. You read through the passion narrative. Jesus there uh, says, Father, forgive them. I, uh, you know, he, he says, um, God, your will be done, not mine. I believe he comes up. He hears the party with Judas Iscariot coming. And even though he has in that very moment the ability and all the power to call down all the resources and legions and legions of angels there in the moment to set up a big block tape, to set, build a house around him, to like not let them get to him, he just stands up. All the meekness in the world to allow this man who spent three years of his life with him, who he just got through washing his feet, this scoundrel, this betrayer that is Judas Iscariot, walk up to him and kiss. Look, again, think about the meekness that it takes to know that the man who's about to put you on the cross is about to get close enough, intimate enough with you to kiss you on the cheek. The meekness not to jackknife powerbomb Judas Iscariot in that moment and to humbly turn a cheek and let him kiss it the meekness to when he backs away and the soldiers go, are you Jesus? Now again, he put a little bit on him here. And I think it's just, I don't know. I, I don't know what God was up to. I don't know what Jesus was thinking. But when they come and they ask that, they go, are you Jesus? And he goes, I am. And they're just like, and they all fall on their butts. So like definitely some meekness there because he could have you know, done like uh, Avengers Infinity Wars and just all disintegrated, obliterated all of them right there in that moment if he really wanted to. He doesn't. The meekness to when a skirmish does begin to break out. Meekness on display as he says, Peter, put your sword up. If we live by that, we're gonna die by that. 
Don't you know I could call down everything that I needed in this moment? Like, put your sword up, Peter. The meekness to put his hands behind the back and to willingly walk into what he was walking into. The meekness to stand before this ludicrous trial between these Pharisees and these Sadducees and these Roman leaders and these high priests to stand on trial with them, silent as a sheep is before its shearers. And to lie after lie that was spoken against him, context after context of his words being misconstrued and taken out of the context that he originally intended them to be. Alone, abandoned, with none of his friends around him at that moment. He continues to stay meek. He goes before Pontius Pilate. Pontius asks him some questions. Jesus still in his meekness is respectful to him. Jesus even getting the questions, hey, what's the truth? Jesus literally standing there as the way, the truth, and the life. Pontius asks him, hey, what's the truth? And Jesus goes, how do you know truth? What is truth? Jesus, as men are ripping off his clothes and leaving them stripped and bared and naked in his meekness, not fighting back, in his meekness, laying bare and naked, in his meekness, lifting his head so that they can place a crown of thorns on it, in his meekness, getting up the hill of Golgotha with a crossbeam on his back, in his meekness, and again, not just strength under control, but God's strength under God's control. In his meekness. What you, <laughs> you know what you don't hear from the cross? Like, it takes all the meekness in the world for Jesus to not go, wait till I get down from here. You wait. You don't hear that on the cross. What you see is Jesus leveraging the, the, the resources and the power of God that can only be given through a meek and contrite spirit as he instead of leveraging all the power that he has to completely just wipe out, obliterate, and annihilate everybody there in the crowd who's seeking to kill him. Instead of leveraging that, he takes the meek approach and prays, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they're doing. And in that meekness, He trades in a relationship with his father so that you can have a relationship with your father. And see, that's really the struggle with meekness. That's, that's what's on the line in whether are you going to be meek or whether you're not. Because if you're not meek, you're going to stay proud. It's, meek, it's meekness or pride. Meekness or pride. And that's it. And see, I, I want you to show this. I think we're going to have it up here so you can write down, put in your notes, tattoo it on your face, whatever you got to do. Here's what I want you to know. Meekness is always willing to sacrifice power for the relationship. Pride will consistently, over and over again, pride will sacrifice the relationship in order to maintain power. That's the difference between meekness and humility. So what I need you to know is that's exactly what's happening in this moment. Jesus is sacrificing all of his power, laying it all out, pouring out of his veins through the crown of thorns on his head so that you, friend, can enter into a relationship with him. And through doing that, you receive what he lost. You receive the inheritance that he, in that, in that brief momentary moment, what he lost, it says, the Bible talks about, hey, the father turned his faith away. It says that Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. In that moment, as the father turns his face away and for the first time ever in eternity, there is a chasm between father and son. Your name and my name find their way in between if we have faith in him. To say, no, no, no. 
That inheritance that Jesus temporarily lost made a way so that I could have an inheritance in the kingdom of God forever and ever. Amen. So friends, that's what's on the table. And so my question to you is at this very moment, in your life, where are you sacrificing keeping your power and losing the relationship? Where are you holding on to your control and how you think things should be and how you think things should go? And maybe you don't realize this yet. Maybe you don't realize the relationship that's slipping away because you're holding on to the power that you think you have. And see, that's what's so crazy about this. He says that the, the meek will inherit the land. And when the people heard that in that original language, it said the meek will inherit the earth. Now, over and over again, that word is actually translated as land. So it's land, earth. When they heard it, they wouldn't have thought, oh, that's us just getting to go to heaven. No, they would, again, you're talking to Jewish group of people. When they heard that, they, were ta- they thought, they were, you're talking about Palestine. You're talking about Israel. You're talking about our promised land that God promised to us. And so when they hear Jesus say, the meek will inherit the land, they're going, what? This land has been in turmoil and it's turned hand over hand over hand for 700 years. The last time that the Jewish people had the land that Jesus was standing on there, the holy land, the promised land, the last time it was their their land was 700 years before. And then a few years after that, there's a group called the Assyrians and they come in and they take the land. And the Babylonians come in and they take the land. And then the Greeks come in and they take the land. And then the Romans come in and for 400 years up until the point that Jesus stands on that hillside, it was the Romans' land. And so when Jesus goes, hey, the meek are going to inherit the land, they're going, no, that's not how it works. Nero's army inherits the land. Nebuchadnezzar inherits the land. The Spartans fight these wars and they get the land. Caesar and all of Rome and Pompey march in and they get the land. They're strong. They're the biggest armies in the world. And so Jesus kind of goes, well, let me weigh in on that and ask you a question. If the powerful take the land by power, who gets the glory? If the mischievous or the contemplative come in and through coups and through coercion, they take the land, who gets the glory? They do. But what happens if the meek get the land? I get the glory because they receive it as an inheritance. And that's what's so amazing about inheritance. It has nothing to do with strength. It's everything to do with blood. And all the strength that everybody on that hillside thought was real strength, like military strength, like, oh yeah, like the, the, the Romans and the Pompey and his leadership and, and the Spartans and all these things that we think in our world even today is strength that gets me what I got. Jesus goes, you're just ants on an anthill. You may be, now all those empires may be strong compared to the Anoim, yes. But to God, again, we're, you're ants on an anthill. And if God wants to run the lawnmower over you, he will. And again, this, this is what I want you guys to not miss in this whole Beatitudes thing. Every one of these that we're going to go through, everybody is already. The blessing comes in sensing it and responding to it. You, everybody, uh, we're all here already meek. Like in comparison to God's strength, you're meek, friend. You can, you, I mean, you can be Bill Gates in the room. You could be who, whatever, name whichever person in the room. You could be whoever you want to be watching this online. You're a mogul, businessman, billionaire, retiring, putting stuff offshore bank accounts, all the authority, everything else, meek in comparison to God's strength. The house you own, you can, have the, you can be the biggest real estate mogul in the room 
owning property all over Ola, Jackson. You even have a mountain house, a beach house, Cayman Island, all of it. That dirt's still God's dirt, friend. You don't own that. He's saying the meek, the meek are actually the ones that inherit it. And it's because when they do, God gets the glory. And so what place in your life right now is there a sacrifice that needs to be, happen of you relinquishing some of your power so that a relationship can grow? Maybe it's a relationship here with people at the church and you're keeping the power of your time. God, I wanna be in control of my time, so I'm not gonna commit to coming to that group. I'm not gonna commit to coming to that, serving at that thing. I'm gonna keep the power over my time and not commit to this. You never have no idea how many amazing relationships you're missing out on right now that could be being built in children's ministry, that could be built by you pouring your life into some students, that could be built by you joining one of our teams to serve. Some of you are like, man, I just wanna keep all the power of my finances. I want to be able to say that this can go here and this can go there. I want to have the freedom to be able to go on that vacation when I want to and do these things when I want to and, and eat Uber Eats you know, every single day and spend $400 on food a week, whatever it may be. I'm meddling in your life. I'm sorry. I just, I've thought the same thoughts. Um, I'm not saying yours. I'm saying mine. Um, I want to do all these things. I don't want to keep all this power. And God's going like, man, what if, what if we started giving? And what if God used your giving to lead people to Christ? And what if, what if you took some of that finances and you used it to go build a relationship, not to just eat burritos? And God's saying, you know, I know you want to be control over your family, but what if you were consistent with your family and you poured into God's word and you guys prayed together? I know you want to be in control of all these things, but like, don't let your power steal the relationship. Follow Jesus' lead. Say, I'm willing to release some power to allow the relationship to grow. And you know those areas. You know which one Jesus wants to pull you into. Some of you are overbearing parents. And what you don't realize right now is you're trying to maintain and keep that control of that teenager. (laughs) I was a youth pastor for like seven years and I just watched it happen. Like you're like, I'm gonna control you. And like you're, you're gonna lose a relationship. God loves them way more than you ever could. He's got an inheritance for them. And he, he'll protect them. Again, don't oh, abandon them. But you can't control them. Some of you are trying to control your whole environment. You're trying to control like your safety. You're trying to control your career. You're trying to control all these different things around you. And what you don't realize is that you're so driven and so focused on, on and getting this next promotion, on getting this next thing and getting this next house or catching up to your sister-in-law or getting all these different things. You're, 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 you're trying to say, I want to have the control, the control, the control and the power that it has to be able to lead and manage and navigate all of these things. And what you don't realize is nobody else matters to you right now. The only thing that matters is getting the power you want or getting the thing that you feel like will give you the approval you want or getting the thing that you feel like will give you the comfort or the security you want. And you're missing out on relationships. In this life, guys, that is all we have. And at the end of the day, like, that's all. That, why would Jesus saves you? Like, in that moment, I believe he saves you. You're good to go for heaven. Like, right there. Boom. Heaven. Heaven bound. There's not a whole, like, like if you are here today, you believe in Jesus, you'll get baptized, you get hit by a Mack truck on the way home. You're in heaven. I believe that wholeheartedly. So why doesn't just Jesus, at the point of salvation, the moment you come out of the water, just boom, heaven. Why doesn't he do that? Because he wants you to build relationships with people. He says, your relationship now with me, vertically, is good. Now go make some good, these relationships, horizontally. That's the reason you're here. 
But we want to keep the power of our own life. We want to keep the pride of our own life. So it causes us to sacrifice relationships. And so you got a, you got a spare day for a lot of you guys tomorrow. Go take your Monday and go, go kick up some relationship stuff. Go pour in some Jesus relationship. Take a meek, release some power. Say, I just want to sleep today. I just want to eat hot dogs today. I just want to eat potato salad today. Uh, it's gross. Jesus, forgive them other sins. Um, <laughs> uh, but like, that's all we have, guys. That's all we have. And look, you're trying to figure out your purpose in life. That's it. Like, don't, don't make it super complicated. God will reveal to you his, his specific will for your life when you begin to live out his general will for your life. Go care for people. Go show people his love. Go show them his grace. Release your power through the resources, time, talent, treasure he's given you, and watch the amazing things that he does in through your life. And so as we get ready to, to wrap up today, I pray that as you come into a time of communion, that you're able to ask those hard questions to Jesus and let him speak deep into those realities because he wants to. Give him that place. Say, Jesus, I, here's, search my heart. Reveal any ways that are off to me. Show me those. And as you're praying, if you feel like God's leading you to take that step of baptism, as you're praying, if you want uh, to take a step into saying, God, I'm gonna give you some power, whether it's my time or, or my treasure through giving, I, I'm gonna begin to do those things. And take that meek approach that says, God, your will be done, not mine. And I pray as you do that you feel the Holy Spirit patting on the back, saying, well done. I'm not after you being successful. I'm after you being faithful. Way to be faithful. We'll feel it today. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your love. A reckless kind of love, Jesus, that spared no expense. That was willing to go wherever it mattered. Whatever the cost was, it was willing to pay it. As we meet with you in these moments, Jesus, we thank you for sacrificing the relationship that you had for the very first time with your Father to a place of disconnection so that we right here in 2021 in McDonough, Georgia could be connected to you. Forgive us as we've sinned, God. Draw people into decisions today, God. Decisions to be baptized, decisions to repent, decisions to turn to you. Don't leave us where we are, Jesus. In your name.